You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Your skin refuses to be defined by age. That's why Agency creates personalized anti-aging formulas that smooth fine lines, lighten dark spots, and improve the appearance of dark circles. Each formula is tailored to you and prescribed by a licensed dermatology provider. Formulas are customized with clinically proven ingredients like tretinoin, which is up to 20 times stronger than retinol. Get your first month free at withagency.com. That's W-I-T-H-A-G-E-N-C-Y.com. $4.95 shipping and handling subject to consultation. Subscription required. Cancel anytime. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, everybody. Uh, before we start the show, I wanted to let you know that I have a documentary coming out. It's on Disney+. Plus. It's part of a documentary series called Marvel 616. I directed the documentary Lost and Found. It has people like John Hamm, Nicole Byer, uh, Shannon Woodward, and so many of your favorite Marvel comic book artists. The series is actually amazing, and it comes out Friday, November 20th. I hope you check it out. The year is 1953, and Goro Shinni Yasashiku. The movie? Tokyo Story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, And this is the show where we are endeavoring to figure out the 100 best movies of all time. If you've been with us since the beginning, you will know that we started off on the AFI Top 100 list. We've culled that list down to 40 essential films. And now we are looking for another 60. Each couple of weeks, we gather together and tackle a different type of genre. We are right now in the middle of fucked up families. And today we are talking about Tokyo Story. Uh, We had a big response to Raising Arizona uh, and a lot of people talking on the boards about their favorite Coen Brothers movie, which makes me think, Amy, we definitely have to do some more Coens on this show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I want to test my thesis that Raising Arizona is the one Cohen that should go onto the AFI network. Because right now I'm feeling pretty solidified with that. But every time I see another Cohen, I just remember that that's my favorite one. No, wait, that's my favorite one. I mean, look, I own a piece of Hudsucker Proxy art. So I'm definitely going to uh, I'm definitely going to talk about Hudsucker Proxy at one point. I mean, I think that would you know what I own, though? What? I'm sorry. I just got this this weekend and I need to talk about it because it's also about a fucked up family. They had an estate sale at the Whatever Happened to Baby Jane um, house where it was filmed. Whoa. And I bought a lamp. I bought a haunted lamp. Haunted? Why would you bring that into your house? <laughs> it's going to scare you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think uh, getting into the holiday season, I'm enjoying the universal nature 
of families being difficult. I think sometimes we can feel so incredibly claustrophobic by our own family relationships. And Mm -hmm. it's great, especially here as we're going to be getting into this film, made in 1953, uh, and not an American film, how the relationships always stay the same. And obviously Raising Arizona is different, but these are all the things that we can connect with. I would argue this is probably one of the most uh, relatable miniseries that we've done. Yeah, it, I think it definitely is. And this episode that we're about to do really excites me because it's, I, I feel like we keep stretching the limits of our freedom now that we're not in the AFI top 100 list. And this is the sort of film that I think is just so exciting to talk about because, I mean, just to give people one factoid about Tokyo Story right up at the top, in 2012, Sight and Sound Magazine got 358 directors together. We're talking like Quentin Tarantino, Dardan Brothers, Guillermo del Toro, Martin Scorsese, uh, Michael Mann, Francis Coppola, Mike Lee, Woody Allen. They got together 358 directors and said, we want y'all to vote on the number one movie of all time. And they picked not Citizen Kane, not 2001. They picked Tokyo Story. Unbelievable. Um, oh, wait, Amy, hold that thought. Do you hear that train? It's a uh, unspooling. The year is 1953. North Korea, China, and the United States sign an armistice agreement, thus ending the Korean War. Joseph Stalin dies and is replaced by Nikita Khrushchev. Queen Elizabeth II is crowned the monarch of England, and Dwight D. Eisenhower is inaugurated as the president of the United States. Jonas Salk develops the first polio vaccine, and the double helix in strands of DNA is first observed. Playboy magazine publishes its first issue featuring Marilyn Monroe on the cover as a nude centerfold. And the popular films are Peter Pan, Roman Holiday, and Shane. Also released in 1953, today's film, Tokyo Story. Since the film is in Japanese, um, why don't we just jump in to talk about who's in it and what's it about? Tokyo Story! Directed by Yasujiro Ozu, one of the great masters of Japanese cinema. It's the story of two rural parents who take the train to Tokyo to see their adult children. And when they're there, they slowly realize that their children don't really want them around. Being elderly in a westernizing post-war Japan, that means they haven't just been sidelined from the center of their family. There's maybe no place for them in this increasingly unfamiliar society. Everybody in this film sees that awkward truth. But what makes this film so compelling to watch is that Everybody's really polite about it, you know, so polite about this estrangement that it really shatters your heart. Everyone in this movie was a big name in the Japanese studio system, but we really have to give a special shout out to Chishiryu and Chieko Higashiyama, who play the old couple, and also Satsuko Haro, who plays the one bit of kindness in this movie, a widow who used to be married to the old couple's son before he died in the war. Ryu and Hara made a lot of movies with Ozu because Ozu directed over 50 films in his career, and his career stretched from the silent era to the 60s. Most of his films are pretty much considered masterpieces, but Tokyo Story has been deemed the best of all. As we talked about, there is a vote, and this one won because that is how film democracy works. Um, And yet, for a really long time, Tokyo Story didn't even play in America at all because it was considered too Japanese and too weird, even by the studio that made it. So when you take that and rewind it back to November 3rd, 1953, yeah, audiences really weren't clearly ready for this great advancement in high culture here in America. Because here, the number one record on the Billboard Top 100, it wasn't even a song. It was a three-minute dragnet parody about a cop who's hunting dragons. And it was called St. George and the Dragonet. Need to hear this. This is the countryside. My name is St. George. I'm a knight. 
Saturday, July 10th, 8.05 p.m. I was working out of the castle on the night watch when a call came in from the chief. A dragon had been devouring maidens. Homicide. My job. Slay him. Love it. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, amazing. Uh, so that's what American audiences were hip to in 1953 instead of appreciating Tokyo's story, which really didn't make an inroad here for two decades. It wasn't until the 70s that people were like, oh, we missed this. What happened? Let's talk about this masterpiece. Well, first of all, let me just say, I'm going to mispronounce a lot in this episode. So I apologize. I'm going to try my best. The second thing I want to say is I'm embarrassed to admit but I've never heard of this director before, Amy. And it's shocking to me because he is so prolific. You talked about that fact about it being voted the number one best movie of all time. And I feel like I have a pretty wide knowledge of film. Even if I haven't seen something, I understand, you know, who directors are and, and what these films are. I've never heard of this movie. And, you know, and it, it just goes to show how little I know about Japanese cinema because I think a lot of it, you know, exists around Kurosawa and 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 that's it until more modern day things. But is that weird or is he kind of in this, I don't know, misty area where, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know, I make me feel better or make me feel worse? Tell me. I'll make you feel better. I mean, it, it makes sense because, you know, the films of Kurosawa, for example, were, I think, really easy for American audiences to like and to appreciate. You know, they're a little bit more action-y. There's, a little, there's more drama. There's like period costuming. They exist in a world where like audiences who like American spectacles can appreciate them really easily. So they were imported over here without too much of a hiccup, comparatively speaking, to Ozu. But mm. Ozu's films are really different. You know, they're... they. This stretch of films where he's making this, you know, they're taking place in the present day. They're about modern Japan. They're smaller. They're closer to like the neorealism, I think, coming out of, of France and Europe than the big spectacle of, of like a Kurosawa film that mm. we were that audiences were really devouring and eating up. And so what happened is that, you know, the studio that made them, uh, Shochiko Studios, which is where uh, Ozu worked from the silent era, they didn't even try to import them here. They were like, American audiences aren't going to get it. It's going to be expensive. They don't really care. We'll just keep them here where they're appreciated. Really interesting. And and I think what I was so blown away by is how I think at certain points you can look at Japanese culture and as from an American point of view and see so many things that seem different. But here, the emotional base level of this movie, I felt, is so, uh, I, it, it's so universal. I mean, this movie is just a wonderful family drama that, you know, made in 1953, but it's 2020. Everything is so relatable. Everything is so organic. I know it's subtitled, but the dialogue is so um, natural. I was really blown away by that. Yeah. I mean, I think Tokyo Story is a devastating film, which I'm really excited to talk right. to you about, because the story that Ozu is trying to get at, the universality of the story he's trying to get at, is that, you know, we're all born into a family and we grow up and we grow in different paths. And there will come a time when your parents are not the center of the world. And how do your parents deal with that? And how do you deal with that? And what is this 
like natural process of letting go of one generation and having another generation take its place. And what does that feel like for everybody? And how awkward is that for everybody? And how uncomfortable it is because you don't want to ever look your parents in the eye and say, you belong to a different generation or you're not important to me the way that my kids are, my job are. But you can't juggle 90 things in, in, at once and something usually has to go. And this is this is a familiar pattern that I think happens to families all across the world. Well, you know, definitely this movie takes the point of view of the parents, right? It is their story that we're watching and you feel the slights of their children. And there's so many great moments. I think the one of the most gut-wrenching moments to me was uh, in the beginning of the film when they arrive in Tokyo, they live in this small coastal town, they arrive in Tokyo and they go to their daughter's house and there are the two kids that are there and they're their daughter's children. And the daughter's like, this is your grandparents. Like, you know, they're here to visit. And then the kid looks up at them and says, okay, I'm going to go up to my room now. And so first of all, <laughs> in that one line, you're like, okay, he's, this child has never met his grandparents. And then upon meeting them is so unimpressed. It just goes upstairs and it, it, like, I know it's a small moment, but it, to me, that's thematically, that's the most true moment of the f- whole film. Like they are really uh, non-existent. You know, they are these like ghosts behind the scenes of uh, of these grown children. Yeah. And and in the movie, it seems like that that let you understand what's happening here, because you know, when we first meet the parents, they're packing up, they're preparing to leave their town with a daughter who actually is devoted to them, a younger one who's still living in the house to get on this train and their neighbor stops by and she's like, you must be so excited. You must love your family. What a great family you have. And they're like, yes, what a great family we have. And it's in those tiny moments of awkwardness that we start to piece together the story of what's happening, that the grandparents don't even seem to quite know how old the kids are, that one of the kids is just using the parents visit as a way of trying to get out of homework and like complaining that he has to hang out with them, that he doesn't get to use his desk because they're going to be sleeping there. And I have to be honest, like, I remember being that kid. Do you remember that being that kid? Like, I remember being that kid. And my grandparents, who I love deeply, my grandmother just turned 90 during quarantine and it's killing me I couldn't see her. But I remember being nine and them coming to visit and then being like, and me being like, I have to share a bathroom with them. Why do I have to share a bathroom with them? Yeah, absolutely. But I lived very close to my grandparents. Uh, One lived in Connecticut and one lived about uh, five towns over from me. So they were very much a part of my life. My grandparents didn't feel uh, special Mm -hmm. to me in the sense that they were people I saw all the time. So I have a different experience with my grandparents. I will say, though, during quarantine, checking in with my family, my mom, my dad, my grandma, who is still alive, um, that moment, and talking to all my friends who took these times, you know, when we were all trapped in our house and there was less to do, I think everyone then looked internally and was like, oh, let me reach out. Let me check in more. Like I check in with my family more now. And it was really interesting to see this moment happen where I feel like people who had strained family relationships made a weekly or multi-weekly, you know, attempt to connect. I mean, I noticed that a lot. I, at the risk of like revealing too much, I mean, I think I'm on the other end of that spectrum. Like I'm an oh, only child who hasn't lived near most of my family for most of my life. You know, I, I mean, my grandparents weren't near me growing up. Not none of them. They're both like several states away. 
and we are a small family and you know i've kind of i've just become a satellite out here in california interesting right and and so yeah like i really connect so much to to this this idea of like you love these people but you don't really know them you know i remember going back to michigan um you know like in college and realizing that all of my cousins hung out when i wasn't there like i just right. thought everybody froze but they had like a whole relationship and web and life that I just wasn't a part of because I had never lived there. And so I get that sense of wanting to talk and bond, but you're playing catch up and you don't know what to say. Oh, abs- I mean, now I feel that way in a major way. Like my whole family is in New York. I moved out here to L.A. over 10 years ago. And the connection that I have to that family, uh, while I love them so much, is just different. My kids are really growing up here, so they're not experiencing them. We try to make all the rounds. You know, one of the things I hate about the holidays is exactly this idea of let's go to all these places. Let's check our boxes. Let's have our conversations. Mm -hmm. Let's do it all. And I think one of the things, just going back to the quarantine of it all, and we'll get into the movie, uh, but one of the things that I noticed was, oh, quarantine allowed me to look at the conversations I'm having And because nothing else was going on, it would either force a more difficult conversation or a deeper conversation instead of like, how's the weather? What's going on? And and that was really interesting to me. And I feel like that is kind of what is at play in this film is they're not they are. They are not having those conversations. They are simply uh, they're, you know, figures in these people's lives. Like, you know, it's like. They, they live here. They do that. We like that. Everyone has their assumptions. No one's actually finding out what is actually going on with each other, truly. And that's why one of the most touching moments is the relationship between uh, the widowed uh, woman who was married to the son who died in the war, uh, because it's really the, the emotional crux of the whole film. You know, it's really interesting to hear you put this in a framing of like our present day quarantine and the idea of time stopping. Because there's this parallel between, you know, this absolute freezing of where we are and in Ozu's camera work, you know, because like Ozu's whole camera style is the camera's in a scene. It's placed down right here. Nobody moves. And there's almost that same kind of devoid of air quality, you know, like what you can't be distracted by anything else. The camera's not going over here or zooming. The camera is watching these awkward conversations and it's watching how nothing is changing, how these people actually still aren't revealing themselves even when they're trapped. You know, that you're just there as they talk about the weather and as they try to find something to talk about with gossip of neighbors they used to know and as they run through all the checklist and then there's nothing to say. And that camera is just still and that room is just quiet. Well, I want to just talk about a couple of technical things because what you're talking about is that tatami uh, style or tatami mat, which is you know, in Japan, many people are, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. basically it it created the point of view of sitting on the floor, right? So that's why all these sets had ceilings and uh, it's this eye level from the floor. It it really is, it's really kind of shocking. And, And I would say that the camera work in this, you could argue after everything that we've been watching is bad, Right. Like uh, in the sense that the camera doesn't move, that actors look directly at camera, that the eye lines are not right, that uh, people enter in where they should be entering out. Like there is a uh, a certain disregard of stylized camera movement, but it does create this thing because all those things 
If you saw it in a student film that was bad, you'd be like, this is terrible. But it, here, it creates a language that is, so, uh, I don't know, it brings you in. Like, when they look down the barrel of the lens, the actors, and, and say these lines, I especially think of the father and his smile. His smile is always there, always very present. And what he's saying versus how he looks, and I think maybe because of subtitling, you can actually really get this too, but it really engages you. And I, like, I was wrestling with that because I know that his camera work is so stunning, but it is not... It is at points comically, not comically bad, but basic, so basic. I mean, it's not moving in any way. Well, I think you're, I think you're, you're paralleling it to language is perfect. You know, it's just that he decided not to learn the Hollywood language and he decided to develop his own language, Right. you know, where it, it puts like a, such a value on almost a still life beauty or on the way characters are interacting in a room without distraction, almost like a theatrical style. But with an emphasis, not on just like, here's the camera and people are moving around, but like really thinking about where the camera is and how to frame a shot so that you can see everybody talking in in the different ways that they're configured around the room. Like there's just this, I, I don't know, still life really is the word that I think of when I think about it, you know, because even a still life frame itself has so much yeah. life in it, you know, like the tumbling grapes and the rotting fruit. Like, I think he's capturing something in here that almost feels like an older type of art form than like pan over here and zoom over here. And like he, he finds to me, I think I watched this film and I think that he thinks the Hollywood language that developed of like, here's the camera over your shoulder as you're having this conversation. Here's the camera over their shoulder as they're having that conversation. He seems to think of it as just boring chit chat that he doesn't have to deal with. Well, yeah, he's not using a master shot either. Like he is truly creating, um, Tableaus, art I guess. And, yeah, tableau, yeah, yeah, and art in every frame. You know, and there's certain things like I know that uh, in my research they were saying he's obsessed with teapots. And you can see teapots that are placed in a way like he has it – like nothing in the background is there by chance. It is all – again, it is a it is a brush stroke in this tableau. I mean, even – uh, if you look in the background, there are all these film posters all over the walls. And, you know, uh, they are films that that he were was inspired by. Right. You know, so you get to see all these little details almost as if, um, you know, it's uh, I think about like uh, like when you do a little diorama in a shoebox, like that level of detail like you're getting in on each little frame i loved it and of course did you yeah, see and you all of these time things to like absorb absorb it right like you're yeah. you're in these people's apartments and you're getting to really notice how they've stored all of these things in the rafters and like how cluttered oh, yeah. it is but how much they're making use of a small space it i, I was thinking now i feel like i'm doing like oh not at all um art house talk but even right. just like from the credit sequence on where you have this you know really big, beautiful, symphonic music playing. that beautiful score and seeing the names play it looks like he's just projecting the names over burlap 
you know, like a black and white still shot of burlap, which you would think isn't that interesting. But yet as you're sitting there, you know, it reminded me of what we were even talking about, about like, um, about like intro ovations when you're talking about like the movies that have like these Mm. intro ovation scores, you're settling down, you're staring at this burlap for a really long time. And I found myself doing that kind of like stonery deep thought of like, wow, and burlap, every strand is like different. There's different textures, different thickness, different thinness. It's woven together. You start contemplating the nature of burlap and how this austere, simple fabric is actually really complicated and woven together. And it's kind of like families and everybody playing their part. And that I, when, when somebody makes the directorial choice to slow stuff down, I feel like it makes my brain wake up in a way because I'm invited to bring myself to it. Yeah, well, we're often forced into this idea that, you know, quicker is better. We're in an age of, you know, I don't want to sound like a grandpa here, but, you know, we're in the age of TikTok and Quibi, RIP, uh, where it's like quicker, faster, let's get it out. And this movie, I almost think, takes the pace of the lead characters. It is of these elderly parents. It's we are traveling at their pace and where cinema is traveling at the pace of their children. Right. And I think that that's a really interesting idea and and probably something that he's wrestling with as well. You know, this is, you know, a very uh, he acknowledges the outside world. Like, it's not that these characters don't live in our world. They do. And as a matter of fact, we see moments of it when they go to the spa, people gambling, people out on, you know, on the street. Uh, we hear the sounds of, you know, we they're in this world, but they don't belong. And I would imagine, you know, it's it. It's really sad because it's the parents being kind of weird. Like what you said, we're done with you and now you move on and we'll give you a call every now and then. It, like When the children say like, we probably won't ever visit you. You live too far away. I mean, in 2020, it takes about four hours to get to where they live. I mean, did you I don't map kn- that? I mapped that. I'm touched that you oh, mapped that. Come on, Amy. I don't <laughs> mess around. I, I was upset though. I couldn't figure out how long it took uh, back in the day, um, yeah. but I would. Uh, let's, but we get let's the sense say, it's like an overnight train trip. Yeah, to get big, to travel from the Hiroshima prefecture to Tokyo and then back again. Yeah, and that idea like that they aren't even worth visiting. It, like you know, because it's just it will take too much time out of their schedules. And and what I think is so interesting about this movie is we spend so much time in the niceties. We spend so much time in the smiles and what's not being said. Uh, that when you have these moments, like these crux moments, like I mentioned, the widow of their son who died in the war, beautiful moment, which I really want to probably unpack with you in a second. But the the scene where the father gets drunk is mm-hmm. this amazing moment because, you know, the parents are kicked out of the house. They have no place to stay, which is so sad. Uh, and, uh, you know, but they're but they're but they're also not going to ask for anything so they're not doing it so they're kind of figuring out where they can stay and then watching their guard both of their their both of their guards go down in this moment of really needing something right they need something from each other and they need to kind of stay and they're they're forced to kind of do something out of the norm or out of their comfort level and i, I think that was so interesting to show like when we aren't in our comfort levels maybe what we reveal about ourselves to make it more comfortable i don't know You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. 
like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, Eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. I mean, maybe we should jump back and try to put this movie, you know, from 1953 in context of what was happening in Japan. You know, the, sure. the changes that were happening that I think Ozu's really representing. You know, because Ozu's not young when he makes this film. Like, he's born in 1903. And he'd lived, like, a lot of life. I mean, he's a guy who grew up watching, like, Italian epics and American epics. Like, he always loved silent cinema from the very beginning. He always wanted to direct. Um, he was... Kind of a mess. Like, I think he got, like, kicked out of school. Like, he was not the best student. But in Japan, the studio system that's arising there at the same time ours is, like, coalescing here is, you know, pretty regimented and very much like an, an apprenticeship kind of program. Like, it's the sort of thing where, like, Ozu as a kid can get a job there, like, at the very basic level at Shochiku's um, Films, which is where he spent most of his career. And he can get this really basic job as, like, the cinematographer's assistant and then, like, work his way up to, like, third assistant director to the director in the period film department and then finally become, like, the director he wanted to be. But it was, it was like, almost just working your way up any sort of ordinary business except that he's this great artist who had a lot of that he wanted to say. But then what happens to him is while his career is on this trajectory is the war. You know, when mm -hmm. he is 34 and he's really starting to make the films he wants to make, he gets conscripted into the Imperial Japanese Army and they send him to China where he was in the Army Reserves. Um, he's like, he got out of it in, well, he survived, I guess I would say, by faking tuberculosis. Wow. He spent a year um, in the hospital. He would like take his thermometer and dip it into hot water so he could just pretend he was sick every day so that he Ooh. didn't have to fight. And then when he finally gets out, he's just sent abroad again. They're like, oh, we need you to make propaganda films in Singapore. So he's like sent to Singapore to try to make propaganda films to support the military. And then while he's there, he just um, decides not to do it. And he watches Citizen Kane over and over and over and over again. And then finally he waits out the war. And when it ends, he just like burns all of the footage of the movie that he had been supposedly supposed to make, this propaganda film that he didn't really have his heart into doing at all. He destroys, like, the footage and the script, and he comes back to a Japan that's changed a lot. I mean, these parents, you know, like I said, they're from Hiroshima Prefecture. You know, this is mm -hmm. taking place eight years after communities around them had been absolutely burned, you know, and destroyed and decimated. And they're rebuilding. And when they're rebuilding in a post-war world, everything's changing, like, suddenly. You know, Japan is doing... You know, a radical change, like a radical kind of heart to heart. They're thinking like, OK, we have to revise our constitution so that this never happens again. We got to like take the political powers away from the emperor. They introduce a bill of rights at this time. They give like vote women the right to vote. You know, Americans are basically in there saying like, we need you to become more of a functioning democracy so that this never happens again. But it means radical change for Whoa. people like these parents who had lived through it all. Meanwhile, our young people eagerly sought the universities and schools. These had set aside old restrictions, 
had opened wide the doors of learning, inviting the greatest freedom of thought and discussion. America sent us teachers, inspiring guides for those who wanted to learn the ways of the democratic world, where freedom of thought, speech, action was a right. Our young people welcomed this opportunity to explore the whole range of knowledge in which women were equals with men. Well, and I would also just want to put here for context, you talk about his life and, and obviously fought in the war and, and he, you know, may have been this rebel, but he also is a person who never married mm-hmm. and lived dutifully with his mother all of his life. You know, so this is somebody in many respects, the world is changing around him. And I think it probably was very easy for him to take the, uh, the point of view of the parents, because it seems to me like he may have been caught in the middle of that. Like, you know, like not being a part of that younger class, even though he was a creative and, and making it, but the, be able to tell that story and, and the world changing around him, like you get this sense of, I think oftentimes we always associate directors as being incredibly liberal, right? Like, oh my mm-hmm. gosh, he would love this change and he would want and and welcome that that this is going apart. But it seems to me that he kind of reveled in the traditional Japanese culture and the and and the embraced the culture of Japan, not the westernization of Japan. Because this is this movie is kind of is shouting against that in a way. It's like you're destroying our culture. Yeah, except I mean it's hard to say, right? Because mm. Well, I mean, one of the one of the reasons that's given for why Ozu was kicked out of school was that he wrote a love letter to another boy in his class. Oh, and they were like, oh, no. So there could be other reasons for him spending his life okay. with his mother. But who's to say? Because he dies, you know, 10 years after this film comes out and he never really got interviewed. I think I, I definitely not by here, by our press. I mean, I do think that he had spunk. Like, there's this story okay. um, from when he was trying to get his career uh, underground where he was, like, at the studio, you know, when he was working his way up. And somebody cut in line from him at the cafeteria, and he got really mad, so he punched them. And then he got sent to, like, the quote-unquote, I guess, like, principal's office, the studio director's office, for starting a fight on the studio grounds. And while he was there, he was like, actually, it's nice to meet you. Here's a film script I have written. Like, he was a guy who, like... Kind wow. of unpredictable. Took advantages of weird corners where he could promote himself. I love that. You know, it's. I was going to uh, maybe throw out a rumor that is probably uh, totally uh, wrong, but why not? And and uh, you know, I think it's interesting because his relationship with his screenwriter uh, Kojo Noda uh, was one that felt to me. Like, oh, what is between these two men? And not to say that you can't have a partnership without anything that is romantic. I, but they spent like 103 days in a cottage together working on this script. You know, they they had a very intimate, or at least from what I've seen, relationship. So I was wondering, oh, do you know anything about that? You know, this is that maybe there was something more. Are you asking these if they two. were fucking? I mean, I'm just saying maybe. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But right. I like your fanfic. I mean, Co- I mean, I mean Kojo I Noto did say, have like... children and was married. But I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm trying to, you know, add a little spice to the podcast. I mean, I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to out people uh, after they're long dead. You know, that's what I yeah. try to do on this show. Really, no, good. I, they spread why it around. Not? I mean, they did really like drinking, and they were really loyal together. I mean, they worked together. I, I think like two and a half decades. 
They had like yeah. a two and a half decade 35 long years. partnership. 35 years. Yeah. This yeah. partnership. The way that like Kogo Noda always described how they wrote, how their collaboration worked was that they would measure it by alcohol, that they I would just that. go on these little vacations and they would sit around for months and work on the script. And every night they'd sit around their night owls. They'd open up one of those giant bottles of sake and they would keep all the bottles of sake they drink while they were working on the script and they would number them so that at the end they would know like, okay, that was a, a 47 bottle movie. That was a 103 bottle movie. Wow. <laughs> and I love the way that they spoke about their work, too. They found that the script was literature. It was, mm. you know, this is something to be cherished and treasured. And people said that, you know, Ozu's most um, happy moment, very much like Hitchcock, was when this film was completely written, like when he had every shot done. It wasn't the filming of it. It was the envisioning of the entire film. And that's incredibly uh, uh, Hitchcockian. Yeah, he was really orderly. I mean, there's some documentaries you can watch that show people his script like process. Mm -hmm. And it had all these secret codes in it that Ozu fanatics have been trying to like understand. Like, what does it mean when he colors this, this color? And what does it mean when he colors it, that color? Like he he mapped it out. I mean, almost it really looks like an architectural blueprint almost. I recently went to Japan or not recently, a year ago, and I just fell in love with that culture. And in, in watching this film, you know, there's so much of what Tokyo is, uh, or at least in custom, that I felt is the same. It made me kind of long for going there again. I mean, I just love that country. Like, you know, it's 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 uh, it's absolutely just a, a beautiful experience. And you spent some time there. I mean, what was it like? to kind of see this and, and how do you feel like it reflects Japanese culture? Yeah, same. No, I was studied there for um, a semester, for a summer semester when I was in college at uh, Ritsumeikan Daigaku, which is um, not far from Osaka. It's in Kyoto, like the big town. that the, Did you go to Kyoto when you were there with your dad? It has all the big, beautiful temples. Yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I was there um, and I really miss it. Like this movie made me miss it so much. I actually had to get sushi uh, while I was watching it in like a little bottle of sake so I could get in the Ozu spirit. Oh, I love that. <laughs> but there's stuff in here that my Japanese is now like way too bad that I didn't pick up on that's in the script when they're going on these tours of Japan itself to try that that I think would represent a lot to, you know, people who are Japanese. Like there's a layer to it that's hard for me to pick up on as like an American watching this. Yeah. Film. But, you know, they go on that tour, right? The tour bus where they're yes. touring around and looking at the beautiful temples. There's that jaunty music, everything's like da 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 da. But what's happening is that the tour guide, you know, she's pointing out the Imperial Palace and she's talking about how tranquil it is and that it was built 500 years ago by like Lord Ota. What's important to Ozu and what I think Japanese audiences would have picked up on is what she leaves out, which is she doesn't mention that, that, that the Imperial Palace was bombed during the war and that they had just rebuilt it. She leaves out that it had been destroyed. 
And it's almost this conversational omission, kind of like what the parents are doing with the kids. You know, like we don't want to talk about the awkwardness or the changes or the things that are uncomfortable. Like, let's just only talk about the good things and the quiet stuff and the stability and everything's totally fine. Well, I mean, look, this is a movie that I think even in the way the story is told does so much via omission, right? Uh, So much of the plot happens off camera, right? And then you are listening to characters tell each other about it. And I think there's something really interesting about that because um, it's not about the plot. It's about the way it affects the people. And, And it's a good lesson, I think, just as any screenwriter, filmmaker, storyteller, you know, can take Cause I think sometimes we, because we can do something, we, we just do it, right. We show it, we get in it. We, you know, and it's like, there's so much more, what we're really looking at for the most part is, is how this information affects each other. And I think, you know, the way that the mom's sickness is kind of doled out to us, it's it very much, um, it's kind of hidden. It's hidden until it's too late or it's hidden until, uh, you know, I guess there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. And it makes you think that, you know, the parents, when they do feel comfortable around people, like in that sequence you were mentioning where the mom is with their widowed daughter-in-law, you know, the one who married their son who died in the war, and the dad is getting drunk with his old buddies and they're talking about their sons and they're talking about their lives during the war. They're really only comfortable with the people that they can even tacitly acknowledge what happened, you know, that the war happened and it disrupted their lives. Like, you can't avoid that when you're with the daughter-in-law because her life was right. destroyed. Like, she lost her husband. It's always there, even if they don't talk about it. Like And they know. And there's this, I think, understanding that happens that they don't have with the other kids because the other kids can just ignore it and pretend it didn't happen. But even at the end, we think that they've emotionally connected. Or I guess the mother is emotionally connected. But when the widow breaks down in front of the father at the end of the movie... It is, uh, I mean, it is just gut-wrenching because she finally is revealing all the things left unsaid. And she's probably the only character that does that the entire film. And, and you know, I was like, this this actress is amazing. And I know that the other sister, the one who runs the hair salon, she got nominated for some sort of a, a Japanese Academy Award. Uh, forgive me for not understanding what that is. Um but I was like, this is the character. I mean, she is giving an insane performance. And little did I know, then when I was doing my research, I'm like, oh, she's been in multiple films. And I think if, I, I mean, I may be wrong here, but I think as the same character or or at least the same character name. Yeah, she's really interesting, like Satsukahara and her relationship with Ozu. I was trying to think of like the closest parallel. And the one that I was thinking of was um, somebody we've talked about before, like D.W. Griffith and Lillian Gish. You know, remember how like in, when we were doing Intolerance, like Lillian Gish was one of his leading ladies. She played, you know, the, the woman rocking the ba- the baby in the inner city yeah. scenes. But she was this virginal character, this like woman who represented like goodness and purity in all of his films. And they had this really close working relationship. And they actually even called Satsuko Hara like the eternal virgin in Japan. And she worked oh, so wow. closely with him. And she also played these really good, beautiful, beatific characters. And they were so intimate together that, you know, when Ozu died, she basically retired herself. And she was like, OK, I've made my movies. She was still pretty young, but she pulled a whole garbo and like 
disappeared, not even just from making movies, but she didn't want to be photographed. She didn't want to be seen. Well, I, I mean, this is kind of amazing. In my research, I'm just going to read something from BFI because I'm not going to pretend like I know it because I didn't see these films. But, uh, you know, they say, obviously, this is the third of Ozu's uh, Noriko trilogy. And it's these self-standing stories featuring this archetype, Noriko. Uh, in late spring, she's a dutiful daughter who reluctantly is persuaded by her aunt to marry and leave the home that she shares. And then in early summer, uh, she again is Noriko, this time living under the same roof as her parents. And her brother's family is a single young woman pushed towards marriage. Um, you know, and this kind of, this idea that, uh, you know, characters changed around her, right? They, you know, they would have different performers or they would have the same performers play different characters. Like uh, uh, Chishu Ryu played the father in late spring and her elder brother in early summer and her father-in-law in Tokyo Story, right? So it's like, they're all kind of moving around, kind of like, like you said, like Preston Sturges or, you know, this idea like they're all there. But I just love that he focused in on this character who was very much alone and going back to what you said before about, well, he never married and maybe he did have, uh, you know, maybe he was gay. I don't know. I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but that idea of constantly being lonely and, and in the way that she expresses her loneliness. And it makes sense to me that this is a character that he wants to explore because it's very easy to put himself in those footsteps because she's widowed or she's at the house. You know, it, it's a mentality I think he can really capture. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, like hearing you list all those titles and thinking about, you know, the time spans and the different stages of life that the Noriko character was at at different parts of it. It makes me want to know if like Richard Linklater was at all inspired by this, you know, when he comes up with his before trilogy and how he structured it and how you're watching these characters grow over time, like his interest in watching an actor he loves grow up. It feels like yeah. he shares that with Ozu and it feels like he might have springboarded from seeing from seeing somebody do it really masterfully like decades before. No, I, I mean, I think that that like that idea of like, absolutely. I love that idea of like how boyhood is a, a, a part of this as well. You know, you're just watching you're just watching growth. Uh, yeah, because there's something about time and like filmmakers who are really interested in capturing time. I mean, yeah. here in the film, you know, like. The movie ends with the sound of a clock. You know, they're sitting there like the father is now widowed. Everybody's left the house. He's sitting alone. And you hear, you know, like Ozu puts in the sound of a clock to kind of like say, like, time is going by. Time is going by. What happens now with time? And you know what it made me think of is actually another Coen Brothers movie. You know, like, I don't know for sure if the Coen Brothers were fans of Ozu, but I might go on a limb and say they were because the ending here, you know, a man who's like accepting that time no longer has a place for him. And where is he in this time now? It's kind of the same ending as No Country for Old Men, which also ends with Tommy Lee Jones sitting in his house. He's done what he was supposed to do over the course of the film. And now he's sitting there and like, listen to what you hear in the background. I knew that whenever I got there, he'd be there. Then I woke up. But yeah, like, I'm really excited that we're doing this film now because I'm wondering, you know, if 358 directors all voted and said this is number one, 
it actually tied at number two was 2001 and Citizen Kane. They tied for number two, kind of mm. like how you wanted to do too. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I, did. I guess you you and 358 directors can't be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but to get to talk about Ozu then, it makes me want to go on an Ozu hunt. Like I want to look for the Ozu and the directors we're going to come to next. Absolutely. Well, I was going to say one director that came to mind was Jim Jarmusch in Stranger Than Paradise. I feel like it also captures this, you know, these two people kind of going through the world in an interesting way. I don't I don't know. There's there's so much to be said I think for the effect of this uh, director, because it also going back to what I said originally, there's a naturalistic element to it. And I think we love watching characters with a world around them. Like, you know, it's sort of like they are the straight men to the world that is crazy. Um, And this is obviously done for melodrama. I think you could do it in comedy. I think, you know, there, that is, uh, they're a little bit out of time. I mean, you know, I think we always, you know, it makes the character more sympathetic that they can't keep up in a way. Yeah, although I would say, I mean, did you wonder while watching this film if it's just that the kids are condescending to them? That the kids are like, the parents aren't up for that. And the parents won't appreciate that. And the kids are underestimating the parents. But the parents are like, we're kind of bored. We'd like to go do something, please. Yeah, like oh, that, the, yeah. that the kids don't respect actually how much life the, the parents have left. But yeah, absolutely. I, I, well, I think it also just calls out a, a thing that is incredibly, uh, I don't know, kind of stupid about the way that we treat our family. It's like, well, they come and visit us. Well, then what are we going to do? Are we going to put our lives on hold? I mean, because when my parents come to visit me, I love that they're here. But uh, but at the same time, it, like my life goes on. I can't just like take it off. One of the, I think some of the best times I've had with my family is when we go on vacation together as a family, because then we're all off, right? Like, but whenever you like kind of inject somebody into your life, I I feel that weight of the way that the kids are reacting when I have a house guest. I love having house guests. I love the people, but I'm also like, but I have to, there's a thing I have to do. And then, all right, but I, you know, I want to stay up a little bit later tonight. Like there's a, there's rules that you have to follow and it becomes uh, really tough. I would, I would argue that my relationship with my mom has become so much better since she moved out to Los Angeles only because you can have a casual dinner and it's a dinner and then that's it. And like, there's not so much weighted on these moments. And I think that it's, you know, we have to kind of reinvent the social ways that we view things. I think that our parents, parents visited them and then they visited us. And then like, you know, they're like these ways that these systems. So I, I know that he's rebelling against the Westernization, but I think also, if we are modernizing everything, why don't we modernize the way that we interact with these people? Like, why not make them burdens? Like, let's create time. Like, but we don't do that. Uh, you know, why don't we, I don't know what I'm saying more than saying that, like, I think you have to be more aware of the time that you're spending and not just like, oh, they'll come and they'll hang out at the house and they'll be fine. And let's shuttle them off to the next place. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you know, I know for me, when my parents used to come to town, I was like, okay, uh, you're going to do this. We're going to go over here. I'll get you tickets for Ellen. Let's go over. You know, it's like all the things like, let me get you to the next spot so you can be busy during the day. Mm-hmm. But it was not for me to spend time with them. It was for them to have a good time. And isn't the whole purpose for you to be with them? I mean, I don't know. And uh, maybe just to focus on that. I mean, then what I feel like I hear you saying is that you have a lot of empathy for these kids, which I I think is something I kept finding myself fighting and trying to make sure I still had. Because, yeah, like we're we're so heavily through the parents' point of view 
that it's easy to be like, these kids are jerks. What's their problem? But honestly, I can't say that I would do anything that differently than the kids. No, it's hard I don't to think do the kids anything are bad. that differently. I mean, even even the the daughter who drives me the most nuts, you know, Shige, um, the one who's like running the hair salon. Yeah. There's a framing of her as being, you know, she's pretty rude. She's kind of like the Lucy and Peanuts character who's like, all right, let's go. Right. I'm done with this. Blah, 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 blah. You know, I kind of wish he died. Like, oh, right. like, Jesus yeah. Christ, Shige, what are you saying? But also, you know, at this time, like the fact that she's running a hair salon, that she has her own business. I mean, that's pretty cool. Like, that's a new thing. Like she's there's a reading from where this time was in 1953, Japan, that she's pretty feminist and awesome for even just having her own business. And it's yes. you know, we lose track of seeing it through that lens that a woman running her own business was still pretty new. But that would have been there for audiences who saw it at the time. And I think they would have given her more generosity than I, it, than is natural for me to give her now because I take her job for granted. Yeah, well, I look, I think that uh, what this movie does is it doesn't necessarily villainize anyone. It shows people actually in a really interesting light, but it also shows how I think a, a well a well-written movie shows three-dimensional characters, right? And at any point, you could put yourself in their shoes. And yes, uh, while she... I mean, I, I found her to be so engaging. Like, the way that she dealt with her dad when he came home drunk and the way her husband was kind of, like, uh, basically put in the... Literally put in the background, like, from the shot, too. Like, he was not allowed to be there. So it was like, you do feel like this woman is running her family and and running her business and is smart and and also has these pent-up issues about her father who's a good drunk like there's so much there and there's a reason why she probably doesn't connect with him because of these issues of him being an alcoholic like it, it's not all black and white even no you're right like we get that we he lets us connect the dots but the daughter who is really devoted who does seem yeah. to you know love them kyoko she got to grow up when her dad had stopped drinking. And so there is this divide right. through the middle of the family that like the older siblings had a really different childhood than the young, younger sibling who's able to like love her parents more wholeheartedly and only see yeah. the good in him. But I, I love the actors who plays Shige so much like Haruko Shugimura because you can hear in this clip, like even if you don't speak Japanese, you can hear through her intonation just how whiny and miserable she can be. Right. Anata! <laughs> Okay, but I'll admit, like, I feel like that character, too, kind of exists in maybe more of a slapstick comedy version of this movie mm -hmm. than the actual movie, right? Like, she's, yeah. just, she's a little bit big. I mean, sure, but I also feel like sometimes movies need to paint things like that. Like, this movie is a melodrama, too. I mean, so there's a lot of big moments here that are just on the dramatic side. So I think that sometimes when you see the comedy, like, balancing that out, it might feel a little bit. But I actually feel like, overall, this is a... This is painted with a, uh, a wide brush, I guess. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. No, that's fair. I mean, it's funny because you watch this movie and you're like... It's not that melodramatic. It's actually really quiet and, you know, yeah. contemplative. But to Ozu himself, he was like, this is my most melodramatic film. Oh, my God. It's so melodramatic. And I think as much as he liked it, I think he also was a little bit ashamed that he made something so fan favorite -y. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like not melodramatic in the sense of... Uh like Sophie's choice, right? Like I'm, I'm go, going back to that or, or, you know, where it's, it's not overly, it's not overwrought. I think that that's also culturally, it's not overwrought because it's, it's the style. I think it, that's 
the culture of Japan, you know, but I do believe that like there is a woe is me element to this. I mean, literally the, the grandmother says to the young boy, like, you know, Hey, when you grow up, I, I may be dead. Like, you know, there, there are those, you know, I think it's just like, there's a woe is me-ness to our two main characters that I think is founded, but maybe let me switch it all back here and say this, maybe they brought it on themselves. Well, yeah. And when she even says that to her grandson, it seems yeah. like she's realizing that for the first time. Like she's kind of realizing her own mortality. And the yeah. way that he films that sequence, I love because, you know, you're looking at her and her grandson from inside the house for a little bit. You're watching them through the window and it looks yeah. like a really touching scene. They're on this hill. He's playing with the grass. And you're like, oh, look, they're having this moment. But then when he cuts back to where they're where they are on the hill, it's awkward and she's uncomfortable and they're not really bonding at all. And there's that gap between how bucolic it looks and how cold it really feels. And yeah, and maybe they do deserve it. Like, I don't think you get as mad as as Shige does that he comes home drunk with another friend. Like, they kind of reveal that other friend in this comic beat. Like, the dad comes home, he's drunk, she's annoyed, and then another guy comes and she just completely loses it. Without there being, I think some animosity from something he did when she was a kid and we don't ever know what it is but we know we know that it exists like you can feel the shape of it you like to watch new stuff right well go to hulu and see what's new because hulu has new stuff all the time Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, Eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Now wait though, speaking of melodrama, I want to talk about a different film just for a little bit, which is the American film that inspired Tokyo Story. Okay. Because here's kind of the story of what happened. Like, Kogo Noda tells Ozu, he's like, there's this American movie. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called um, Make Way for Tomorrow. It's from the 30s. And, and he's like, I don't know if you've seen it, but I think we should do a remake. And Ozu is like, I haven't seen it. And I'm actually not sure if he ever even bothered to see it. But this movie, this American movie that that um, Noda was really inspired by is awesome. And I really want people to watch it. Um, It stars a woman that we've actually seen a couple of times, Beulah Bondi. If you remember her, she always played Jimmy Stewart's mom. She was Jimmy Stewart's mom. Oh, yes, um, of course. We've talked about her. Smith, And she was Jimmy Stewart's mom again in, I I think, uh, yeah, Wonderful Life. But yeah, she's the star. So seeing like Beulah Bondi be the star of a movie is also just cool. Like seeing an old woman helm a movie. But it's basically this idea put on the American Depression, where it's the late 30s and she's you know been married to her husband for 50 years and they're losing their house and they have three or four kids, five kids, and the kids will not agree to like take them both in. Um, okay. So they separate the parents and like one's living in one house and one's living in the other house. And it it's it's a lot 
bigger and more melodramatic, like beat by beat. Like there's a daughter who goes out gallivanting with older men and maybe runs away from home. Like there's, there's more comedy and more pathos and more tragedy, but it is a beautiful film. Like I, I think if people love Tokyo Story, you have to watch Make Way for Tomorrow. Well, I love this. And, you know, Amy, I think we're talking about something again that aged really well. I think it talks about things that are still at the forefront of our culture, especially the culture that is now moving at a rate where everyone is struggling to keep up with what even is going on in the last couple of years, right? Like we're just constantly, everything's being turned over, turned over, turned over. And what are the things that are important to us and and where are the family structures? I think we've gotten a chance to uh, sit and correct them. But when this comes out, I can imagine, and because I don't know this director, I didn't know this director until now, this movie is not as heralded as as we are now uh, giving it its due, right? I mean, or, or am I wrong? Well, no, I mean, it, it really doesn't come out. You know, it has this official international premiere, like, quote unquote, four years after it comes out. And that's only in Europe. And that's in 1957. And when it plays then, uh, one of the critics who was there said that many people walked out. They just didn't like it or care wow. about it very much. And so the, then um, in Japan, they considered it to be like kind of fuddy-duddy and old. So it wasn't super heralded there either right. as much as we might expect. Like they were getting their own younger version of directors coming up who were like, we don't want to do this anymore. We want to make a more youthful cinema. So it was a little out of place, even in its own time. You could almost say the film is kind of like the parents itself. You know, like here we are, we exist. It's not that we're worth any less as individuals, but we're not in a moment that values us. You know, we're kind of out of out of time. And so what happens to the film is, you know, eventually it starts playing a little bit in London. And there's um, a film curator there who's like, wait, this is actually really important. And he tries to start programming um, screenings of it, like screenings of Ozu after Ozu died. It's one of those things where he dies oh, wow. and, the, and the programmers are like, what did we do? Like, we really missed out on telling Americans who this guy is. So they program a couple, they program it here for like a weekend in Los Angeles in the 60s. And some people see it and they're like, okay, cool. But it doesn't really get this huge swell of love until the 70s. You know, when it, when like the new generation of directors who were all making their own new films, like saw it and really embraced it. I mean, like here's Paul Schrader for one, like talking about seeing this film in the 70s. I think that uh, what Ozu did for me and for uh, a number of other filmmakers my age was showed a way that uh, film could operate, it could affect you, uh, which was not the normal kind of um, kinetic, uh, energetic way of cinema. That was a much quieter and more interesting way of cinema. And uh, uh, so I started pursuing this connection I felt between Ozu and uh, some other filmmakers and uh, became sort of obsessed with Ozu at that time. But then, like, it really gets this huge foothold, you know, and everybody starts going nuts. Like, it's like the new hip thing. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago when everybody went nuts over William Friedkin's Sorcerer, like this movie no. that, you know, he had made and kind of like vanished. And then everybody's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. William Friedkin's Sorcerer is the greatest sorcerer movie of all time. It's the greatest Friedkin movie. You know, films that kind of come in and out of trendiness. Right. Yes. That's what happened here. And, you know, people were just like, that's the hip movie. Everybody needs to go see Tokyo Story. Like, this is the movie you've got to see. And it builds that word of mouth that we've seen happen to so many films on these lists of like growing into culture. And I can't help but wonder if part of why 
it took a foothold, you know, in the mid seventies is it comes out again in theaters around the time that the Godfather does. And I think these two films have a little bit in common. It's like, oh, do you like one big epic about generations and collapsing families and time slipping by and kids being screw ups? If you like that, maybe you're going to like Tokyo Story. You know, they're not too far off. But that said, like when something becomes that trendy, yes, there are negative reviews. So if you're looking for blood, I found some. All right. What do we got? Okay. So this is a negative review that comes from in the 70s from the San Francisco Examiner. And they write, having learned to distrust the New York critics, particularly when they're climbing aboard the bandwagon of some cult film. I'm not surprised that their latest rediscovered masterpiece, Yasujiro Ozu's Tokyo Story, it doesn't really merit the tons of praise lavished on it. He calls it a good workmanlike film that shows its age and says it isn't likely to make an extraordinary impression on many, but the most patient cultists willing to ignore its thoroughly oriental crawling pace, which the Japanese cinema has largely abandoned in recent years. There are quite a few walkouts during the press screening. Yet, it's not exactly an unrewarding film, though I found the length excessive for what Ozu attempted to depict in his plotless, fundamentally undramatic study of domestic life. And then he just goes hard on the New York critics. It seems like there's, you know, some. he, he thought they were too cool for school and he wanted to take him down a peg. He says that their ecstatic reviews were tantamount to self-flagellation for the guilt of having neglected a classic. But the static camera work and interminably long scenes are difficult to, pay, to take, especially since most of the film is set indoors. So he's like, y'all just playing. Y'all are just pretending to like this film. I don't think it's that good. You know, there's something about this reaction to this film and the way that he made the film that feels like he did the reverse Bogdanovich. Like Bogdanovich obviously uh, is connected to old cinema. He's at a Mm -hmm. point in time where cinema is evolving around him. It's so much more interesting, American cinema. But uh, what he creates with Last Picture Show is uh, incredibly engaging, right? But it is slow, small. Uh, all this sort of stuff. And American audiences really seemingly gravitated towards it, right, at the time. But here, you know, very much underscoring the thesis of what Ozu makes, Japanese culture is like, nope, see you later. This is not, like, we are past this. Like, they don't want to go backwards. And, you know, and I, uh, I wonder if, you know, he was onto something. Like, you could still be a director who could tell a story in an old way but have a theme that is new and engaging because i think that that's what bogdanovich was able to do to a certain degree no i think you're right i mean if there's anything i feel like we've really started to see you know from talking about films from you know 1916 all the way up until now is how much just different things come in and out of fashion yeah you know and there, there are times when people are hungry for stuff that feels new and fresh because it feels different, you know, or really in this case, like quote unquote foreign, you know, or international, the way that the way that 400 blows felt and the way that this felt, you know, later on. And there's that hunger, like when things get old here, what are we, what do we need to make us feel new again, to make the the movie theater feel fresh again, even if it means like new is something old. Well, I mean, in that same sense, well, what do we think if we're taking this to the aliens? I mean, what do we, what do the aliens think of this? Oh, man. I mean, I wonder if they relate to displacement. What if they come from eggs and they just can't even understand why we'd have any bond at all? You know, if I'm putting this movie up with, I don't know, if I'm putting this movie up with Raising Arizona, like, I enjoy Raising Arizona more. Absolutely. But uh, this movie is beautiful. And it actually, I think, talks about family in a way that 
is so uh, well done. I mean, look, if I'm going to put my favorite family movie up there, it's it's probably National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, but the uh, which also explores the idea of the grandparents coming to the house and not being respected. But uh, but there is something so kind of universal. If you could so find sp- any quote from from that movie saying that they're inspired by this movie, I will give you three million dollars. Okay, internet, do your job, <laughs> do your job. Because uh, by by the way, like, look, that's John Hughes. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I look. John Hughes, a very influential director. You got to tell me he watched Ozu. Okay, one degree of Ozu separation. Let's see. Let's test it out. Uh oh, Amy. I just <laughs> typed it in. The first thing that comes up: the wonder of John Hughes and Yoshiro Ozu. What? Um. Yep. It says like this. It like this is a whole article about <gasps> it. Uh, just like Hughes is never losing the wonder at the world and having a particular ability to empathize with childhood and life before adult responsibilities, both capture the joy and pain of growing up, the complexity of family life, and the feelings of safety and security that are so central to our place in the world. Both men at their best created sweet and moving and bittersweet glimpses of human relations, reminding us of what's important and slowing down from the daily race. Hughes uh, left Hollywood in the 90s because he feared its influence on his sons, and that in being there would lose sight of the important things in life. Uh, and this is an article I just read from uh, AEI.org. I don't know what that is, but AEI.org. <laughs> and that was my, Michael Oslin. But, uh, but by the okay. way, not, yeah, not bad, not bad. All right, well, it will take me a while to save up the $3 million, but we do at least have a, a John Hughes penned movie coming up in our Fucked Up Family series. So if we yes. can find it, let's look for the uh, Tokyo Story Home Alone connection, because now I'm curious. All right. Well, there we go. I mean, look, there's family in there too. The kid, family forgetting the kids, trying to make the perfect vacation. It's all there. Kevin, uh-huh. getting kicked in the Pepsi nuts weird. happens in Tokyo Story all the time. Oh, come on! Don't, 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 don't. Uh, do not just uh, <laughs> debase Home Alone for being a kick in the nuts movie. It's so much more than that. Home Alone three different. Um, Amy, this was lovely uh, to talk to you about this movie, and I really love it. And uh, and I feel really uh, again. Once again, I opened to see a little bit more of what uh, what is out there. Yeah, me too. I'm really glad we did this. I'm really glad we did this. I mean, knock on wood, it feels like this is one of those movies that will reverberate through what we see next. I'm hoping. Yeah. So. You know, I love it when that happens. When I, I just we are this podcast is the burlap of movie history. And every thread in its own way connects to another thread. And it's been beautiful to weave them together with you, Paul. Absolutely. Well, Amy, uh, we will see you next week as we get into a movie, another movie I've never seen. But this is a movie that has a lot of people that we all know and love. Uh, Eve's Bayou came out in 1997. It's on Vudu and Amazon Prime and YouTube and iTunes and Google Play, all all the places. And uh, let's take a listen to the trailer. Memory is a selection of images, some elusive, others printed indelibly on the brain. Daddy loves you so much. I know. We'll dance at every party. Each image is like a thread. Each thread woven together to make a tapestry of intricate texture. When I first met Lewis, I said to myself, he's a healer, he'll take care of me. Do you still love her? Men fought each other for the privilege of speaking her name. And the tapestry tells a story. And I find out he's just a man. You're in trouble. They're really mad. Who, them? (laughs) They always mad. And the story is our past. I'll never forgive you if you drive him away. The summer I killed my father, I was 10 years old. I 
saw Daddy. What? Daddy and Mrs. Moreau. Don't get lost. What's wrong with her? Oh, she'll be all right. Have you told anyone? Because if you tell, I swear I'll do you all. You know I love my sister, but she's not unfamiliar with the inside of a mental hospital. Sunday. Which one of your patients you're gonna see, Louis? What was wrong with that lady? Some illness hard to put a finger on. Not every night he's not working. I know he's not. She thinks I'm driving you away. She's a child, Rob. How do you kill someone with voodoo? I put his hair inside the wax coffin. Buried it in the graveyard. That's ridiculous. You want to face the dead. But you can't kill people with voodoo. Sometimes a soldier falls on his own sword. Yes. You speak to my wife again, and I will kill you. Oh, God. No! Uh, and this is uh, written and directed by Cassie Lemons, uh, and Sam Jackson is in as a producer, and uh, Journey Smollett. It's a really cool, uh, a cool film. I'm very, very excited to check this out. And Amy, just a reminder, um, my documentary, Lost and Found, part of the Marvel 616 documentary series on Disney+, Plus, comes out tomorrow, Friday, November 20th. I hope you enjoy it. It's an amazing documentary series. I got to direct uh, an episode, which I am in, all about... Uh, Marvel characters that are forgotten, that need a little bit more attention. I know your theories on Disney and Marvel, but I think you will like this one. Uh, All right, so we will see you next week on On Spool. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.